Section 1 of The Early Short Fiction of Edith Wharton, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Winifred Asman. The Early Short Fiction of Edith Wharton by Edith Wharton. Kerfall, Part 1 as first published in Scribner's Magazine, March 1916. "'You ought to buy it,' said my host. "'It's just the place for a solitary-minded devil like you. And it would be rather worth while to own the most romantic house in Brittany. The present people are dead broke, and it's going for a song. You ought to buy it.' It was not with the least idea of living up to the character my friend Lanravain ascribed to me, as a matter of fact, under my unsociable exterior, I have always had secret yearnings for domesticity, that I took his hint one autumn afternoon and went to Kerfall. My friend was motoring over to Quimper on business. He dropped me on the way, at a crossroad on a heath, and said, first turn to the right and second to the left, then straight ahead till you see an avenue. If you meet any peasants, don't ask your way. They don't understand French, and they would pretend they did and mix you up. I'll be back for you here by sunset. Don't forget the tombs in the chapel. I followed Lanravain's directions with the hesitation occasioned by the usual difficulty of remembering whether he had said the first turn to the right and second to the left or the contrary. If I had met a peasant, I should certainly have asked, and probably been sent astray. But I had the desert landscape to myself, and so stumbled on the right turn, and walked on across the heath, till I came to an avenue. It was so unlike any other avenue I have ever seen, that I instantly knew it must be the avenue. The grey-trunked trees sprang up straight to a great height, and then interwove their pale grey branches in a long tunnel through which the autumn light fell faintly. I know most trees by name, but I haven't to this day been able to decide what those trees were. They had the tall curve of elms, the tenuity of poplars, the ashen color of olives under a rainy sky, and they stretched ahead of me for half a mile or more without a break in their arch. If ever I saw an avenue that unmistakably led to something, it was the avenue at Kerfall. My heart beat a little as I began to walk down it. Presently the trees ended, and I came to a fortified gate in a long wall. Between me and the wall was an open space of grass, with other grey avenues radiating from it. Behind the wall were tall slate roofs, mossed with silver, a chapel belfry, the top of a keep. A moat filled with wild shrubs and brambles surrounded the place. The drawbridge had been replaced by a stone arch, and the portcullis by an iron gate. I stood for a long time on the hither side of the moat, gazing about me, and letting the influence of the place sink in. I said to myself, if I wait long enough, the guardian will turn up and show me the tombs, and I rather hoped he wouldn't turn up too soon. I sat down on a stone and lit a cigarette. As soon as I had done it, it struck me as a puerile and portentous thing to do, with that great blind house looking down at me, and all the empty avenues converging on me. It may have been the depth of the silence 
that made me so conscious of my gesture. The squeak of my match sounded as loud as the scraping of a brake, and I almost fancied I heard it fall when I tossed it onto the grass. But there was more than that, a sense of irrelevance, of littleness, of childish bravado, in sitting there puffing my cigarette smoke into the face of such a past. I knew nothing of the history of Kerfall. I was new to Brittany, and Lanravain had never mentioned the name to me till the day before. But one couldn't as much as glance at that pile without feeling in it a long accumulation of history. What kind of history I was not prepared to guess. Perhaps only the sheer weight of many associated lives and deaths which gives a kind of majesty to all old houses. But the aspect of Kerfall suggested something more, a perspective of stern and cruel memories stretching away like its own grey avenues into a blur of darkness. Certainly no house had ever more completely and finally broken with the present. As it stood there, lifting its proud roofs and gables to the sky, it might have been its own funeral monument. Tombs in the chapel? The whole place is a tomb, I reflected. I hoped more and more that the guardian would not come. The details of the place, however striking, would seem trivial compared with its collective impressiveness, and I wanted only to sit there and be penetrated by the weight of its silence. "'It's the very place for you,' Lanravain had said, and I was overcome by the almost blasphemous frivolity of suggesting to any living being that Kerfall was the place for him. "'Is it possible that anyone could not see?' I wondered. I did not finish the thought. What I meant was undefinable. I stood up and wandered toward the gate. I was beginning to want to know more, not to see more. I was by now so sure it was not a question of seeing, but to feel more, feel all the place had to communicate. But to get in, one will have to rout out the keeper, I thought reluctantly, and hesitated. Finally, I crossed the bridge and tried the iron gate. It yielded and I walked under the tunnel formed by the thickness of the Chemin de Ronde. At the farther end, a wooden barricade had been laid across the entrance, and beyond it I saw a court enclosed in noble architecture. The main building faced me, and I now discovered that one half was a mere ruined front, with gaping windows through which the wild growths of the moat and the trees of the park were visible. The rest of the house was still in its robust beauty. One end abutted on the round tower, the other on the small traceried chapel, and in an angle of the building stood a graceful wellhead adorned with mossy urns. A few roses grew against the walls, and on an upper window sill I remember noticing a pot of fuchsias. My sense of the pressure of the invisible began to yield to my architectural interest. The building was so fine that I felt a desire to explore it for its own sake. I looked about the court, wondering in which corner the guardian lodged. Then I pushed open the barrier and went in. As I did so, a little dog barred my way. He was such a remarkably beautiful little dog that for a moment he made me forget the splendid place he was defending. I was not sure of his breed at the time, but have since learned that it was Chinese, and that he was of a rare variety called the sleeve dog. 
He was very small and golden-brown, with large brown eyes and a ruffled throat. He looked rather like a large, tawny chrysanthemum. I said to myself, these little beasts always snap and scream, and somebody will be out in a minute. The little animal stood before me, forbidding, almost menacing. There was anger in his large brown eyes. But he made no sound. He came no nearer. Instead, as I advanced, he gradually fell back. And I noticed that another dog, a vague, rough, brindled thing, had limped up. There'll be a hubbub now, I thought. For at the same moment a third dog, a long-haired white mongrel, slipped out of a doorway and joined the others. All three stood looking at me with grave eyes, but not a sound came from them. As I advanced, they continued to fall back on muffled paws, still watching me. At a given point, they'll all charge at my ankles. It's one of the dodges that dogs who live together put up on one, I thought. I was not much alarmed, for they were neither large nor formidable. But they let me wander about the court as I pleased, following me at a little distance, always the same distance, and always keeping their eyes on me. Presently I looked across at the ruined façade and saw that in one of its window frames another dog stood, a large white pointer with one brown ear. He was an old, grave dog, much more experienced than the others, and he seemed to be observing me with a deeper intentness. "'I'll hear from him,' I said to myself. But he stood in the empty window frame against the trees of the park and continued to watch me without moving. I looked back at him for a time to see if the sense that he was being watched would not rouse him. Half the width of the court lay between us, and we stared at each other silently across it. But he did not stir, and at last I turned away. Behind me I found the rest of the pack, with a newcomer added, a small black greyhound with pale, agate-coloured eyes. He was shivering a little, and his expression was more timid than that of the others. I noticed that he kept a little behind them, and still there was not a sound. I stood there for fully five minutes, the circle about me, waiting as they seemed to be waiting. At last I went up to the little golden-brown dog and stooped to pat him. As I did so, I heard myself laugh. The little dog did not start or growl or take his eyes from me. He simply slipped back about a yard and then paused and continued to look at me. "'Oh, hang it!' I exclaimed aloud, and walked across the court toward the well. As I advanced, the dogs separated and slid away into different corners of the court. I examined the urns on the well, tried a locked door or two, and up and down the dumb façade. Then I faced about toward the chapel. When I turned, I perceived that all the dogs had disappeared except the old pointer, who still watched me from the empty window frame. It was rather a relief to be rid of that cloud of witnesses, and I began to look about me for a way to the back of the house. Perhaps there'll be somebody in the garden, I thought. I found a way across the moat, scrambled over a wall smothered in brambles, and got into the garden. A few lean hydrangeas and geraniums pined in the flower-beds, and the ancient house looked down on them indifferently. Its garden-side was plainer and severer than the other. The long granite front, with its few windows and steep roof, 
looked like a fortress prison. I walked around the farther wing, went up some disjointed steps, and entered the deep twilight of a narrow and incredibly old box walk. The walk was just wide enough for one person to slip through, and its branches met overhead. It was like the ghost of a box walk, its lustrous green all turning to the shadowy grayness of the avenues. I walked on and on, the branches hitting me in the face and springing back with a dry rattle, and at length I came out on the grassy top of the Chemin de Ronde. I walked along it to the gate tower, looking down into the court, which was just below me. Not a human being was in sight, and neither were the dogs. I found a flight of steps in the thickness of the wall and went down them, and when I emerged again into the court, there stood the circle of dogs, the golden-brown one a little ahead of the others, the black greyhound shivering in the rear. "'Oh, hang it, you uncomfortable beasts, you!' I exclaimed, my voice startling me with a sudden echo. The dogs stood motionless, watching me. I knew by this time that they would not try to prevent my approaching the house, and the knowledge left me free to examine them. I had a feeling that they must be horribly cowed to be so silent and inert. Yet they did not look hungry or ill-treated. Their coats were smooth, and they were not thin except the shivering greyhound. It was more as if they had lived a long time with people who never spoke to them or looked at them, as though the silence of the place had gradually benumbed their busy inquisitive natures. And this strange passivity, this almost human lassitude, seemed to me sadder than the misery of starved and beaten animals. I should have liked to rouse them for a minute, to coax them into a game or a scamper, but the longer I looked into their fixed and weary eyes, the more preposterous the idea became. With the windows of that house looking down on us, how could I have imagined such a thing? The dogs knew better. They knew what the house would tolerate and what it would not. I even fancied that they knew what was passing through my mind, and pitied me for my frivolity. But even that feeling probably reached them through a thick fog of listlessness. I had an idea that their distance from me was as nothing to my remoteness from them. In the last analysis, the impression they produced was that of having in common one memory so deep and dark that nothing that had happened since was worth either a growl or a wag. "'I say,' I broke out abruptly, addressing myself to the dumb circle, "'do you know what you look like, the whole lot of you? You look as if you'd seen a ghost. That's how you look. I wonder if there is a ghost here, and nobody but you left for it to appear to.' The dogs continued to gaze at me without moving. It was dark when I saw Lanravain's motor lamps at the crossroads, and I wasn't exactly sorry to see them. I had the sense of having escaped from the loneliest place in the whole world, and of not liking loneliness, to that degree, as much as I had imagined I should. My friend had brought his solicitor back from Quimper for the night, and seated beside a fat and affable stranger, I felt no inclination to talk of Kerfall. But that evening, when Lanravain and the solicitor were closeted in the study, Madame de Lanravain began to question me in the drawing-room. "'Well, are you going to buy Kerfall?' she asked, tilting up her gay chin from her embroidery. "'I haven't decided yet. 
The fact is, I couldn't get into the house, I said, as if I had simply postponed my decision and meant to go back for another look. You couldn't get in? Why, what happened? The family are mad to sell the place, and the old guardian has orders. Very likely, but the old guardian wasn't there. What a pity! He must have gone to market. But his daughter? There was nobody about. At least I saw no one. How extraordinary! Literally nobody? Nobody but a lot of dogs, a whole pack of them, who seemed to have the place to themselves. Madame de Lanrevaine let the embroidery slip to her knee and folded her hands on it. For several minutes she looked at me thoughtfully. A pack of dogs? You saw them? Saw them? I saw nothing else. How many? She dropped her voice a little. I've always wondered. I looked at her with surprise. I had supposed the place to be familiar to her. Have you never been to Kerfall? I asked. Oh, yes, often, but never on that day. What day? I'd quite forgotten, and so had Herve, I'm sure. If we'd remembered, we never should have sent you today. But then, after all, one doesn't half believe that sort of thing, does one? What sort of thing? I asked, involuntarily sinking my voice to the level of hers. Inwardly, I was thinking, I knew there was something. Madame de Lanrevain cleared her throat and produced a reassuring smile. Didn't Herve tell you the story of Kerfall? An ancestor of his was mixed up in it. You know every Breton house has its ghost story, and some of them are rather unpleasant. Yes, but those dogs, I insisted. Well, those dogs are the ghosts of Kerfall. At least the peasants say there's one day in the year when a lot of dogs appear there, and that day the keeper and his daughter go off to Morlaix and get drunk. The women in Brittany drink dreadfully. She stooped to match a silk. Then she lifted her charming, inquisitive Parisian face. Did you really see a lot of dogs? There isn't one at Kerfall, she said. End of section one.